We're in the book of Sam, 1 Samuel today. <laughs> Got all the Sams together here. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you, you definitely need to be looking at one. So there's a blue Bible in front of you, page 225. And we're going to read the first 20 verses of 1 Samuel. When, when you turn to 1 Samuel... Um, most Bible scholars would say what you're turning to is the beginning of the great history of the kings in Israel. And specifically, when you're turning to 1 Samuel, you think of three towering figures, three powerful men. Samuel, who's the last judge, and then the first king of Israel, that's Saul, and then the second king and the greatest king of Israel, King David. And, of course, that would be an appropriate way to summarize the book. Uh, yet the, the history of these three powerful men is founded on the prayers of uh, a single barren woman, a woman named Hannah. And that's the person we're going to be talking about this morning. So let's look at this First Samuel chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 through verse 20. Let's stand together as we read God's word. I'll skip a few of these names here in verse 1. But there was a certain man whose name was Elkinah, and he had two wives, verse 2. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord, the host, the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkaniah sacrificed, he would give portions to Paniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he would give a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as they went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. But Elkaniah, husband, the, the, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why, why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but you will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And Eli answered her, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate 
and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah, Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. You may be seated. Let's take a few moments to reflect on God's word. On this uh, Mother's Day morning, I thought it would be appropriate to reach back in this Old Testament story and and just browse through this brief biography of Hannah and, and really all of what we know is captured in this first chapter. And then she has this beautiful prayer in the second chapter. We're going to be looking at these 20 verses and I, I just want to look at them in three different scenes. First, there's a pattern that I think is important to see in verses 1 and 2. Then we really need to understand the painful situation that Hannah finds herself in, and I think you will find yourself in at times, and perhaps some of you are in that painful situation today. And then we'll see her, her prayer, which is really just one, one verse in verse 11. So a pattern, a painful situation, and a prayer. And when I speak about some of these issues, and you'll see as we unfold, there's just lots of stuff here that's going to get stirred up. And there's no way I could try to answer every question. I think after some of the statements or thoughts, you might say, oh, what about and how about and that's like me. Or you're going to have that kind of reaction, I think, or at least some of you are. So uh, I'm just going to be up here after the service. It would be helpful for you to have somebody to pray for you. An elder will be up here as well. We'd be happy to pray for you. So if you just have some sense that God's stirring something up, we want to try to capture that. Of course, we can have a conversation later, but sometimes just right at this moment is the moment uh, that maybe God has something he wants you to hear. So let's see these first, a pattern. There was this certain man, Elkanah, and he has two wives. One's name is Hannah. This is one and two, and another named Paniah. And so when we look at this pattern, the first thing we're supposed to think of when we come to 1 Samuel is we're reading 1 Samuel right on the heels of the book of Judges. So it's as if you've turned the last page in the book of Judges and the next page over would be uh, Samuel. And you'll recall under Joshua's leadership, Joshua ably led the people across the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan and they began to spread out and, and take over the promised land. But after Joshua died, the people began to, to, to wane in their commitment to the Lord. After the leader goes away, the people began to sort of scatter like sheep. They began to wander out, and they just were attracted to the world, the people around them. And you might say God's people looked more like the people of the world than the people of the Word. And so what happened, unfortunately, is not not only were their hearts captured by the culture, they became enslaved, actually, to the Canaanites, many times the Philistines. And sadly, these people who had been slaves in Egypt, and now they're in the promised land, they get enslaved in their own land. They become enslaved in their, their own culture. But thankfully, uh, God is gracious 
And he sends these rulers that are called judges. You might think of them as military generals. And time after time, this is the cycle through the book of Judges, a judge comes, he begins to take control, but then when he dies or she dies, in the case of Deborah, the people began to go back out into the world. And this is the cycle. And it's like a kite in a downward spiral. You just know it's going to hit and, and, and going to crash. And you see this crash in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It's the very last verse in the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, so any nation who becomes full of people who just want to do whatever they want to do, not just Israel, any nation who gets full of people who just want to do what they want to do, that's a nation in a downward spiral. That's a nation that's falling into chaos. And that's exactly what's happening here. And so when you turn to 1 Samuel, you might say Israel is looking for a leader. You're wondering what's going to happen to Israel, this, this promised land, these people of God, what's going to happen? And we're looking for some leader to come in. And here's how one commentator put it. The solution to Israel's leadership crisis will not be found in the expected places. The story does not begin with the prominent or the powerful. Instead, it's just a certain man and a barren woman. First Samuel is about a God who makes something out of nothing, brings life out of death, makes somebody out of nobody. This is the pattern. So just in these first two verses, we see God's pattern. It's not just here. It's all through the Bible. God's always making something out of nothing. You might say chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel is much like chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, where God comes in and he makes something spectacular out of nothing. And so it seems to be this biblical pattern that whenever God is preparing to write a new chapter in the life of his people, he prefers to start with nothing. His preferred pattern, his preferred plan is to start with nothing. Not to start with the powerful, not to start with the prominent, but to start with, with nothing or the people who are just a certain man, a, a, a barren woman. And so when you come to 1 Samuel, you might think you just get enamored by these powerful men, Samuel and Saul and David. But Samuel wants to help us see, and I believe God wants to help us see, I want you to see the foundation before you see the edifice. The foundation is a prayer of a barren woman. Everything is being built off this particular foundation. And so this pattern, seeing this pattern... It's a great reminder to anybody here who feels like a nobody. It may be that's that's the time, that's the moment God's ready to move. It might be a warning to anybody captured by power, by prestige. It's not to say God can't use those people, not to say he wouldn't. Or he couldn't, he can do whatever he wants. But the pattern for God's glory is to begin with a barren woman, to begin with nothing, and then to make something out of nothing. So that's the pattern. Secondly, let's, let's see this painful situation. Hannah had two wives, 
And this man used to go up year by year to Shiloh. This is the place where the basically the temple was. And they're offering sacrifices. This is a yearly trek from their hometown, Ramah, into to Shiloh. And one of his wives, Paniah, she had all of her sons. She had a number of sons and daughters. But Hannah, probably the first wife that uh, Elkaniah had, she had nothing. In fact, it says the Lord had, had closed her womb. And this is a very real crisis. This is just not something that you think, well, this is a bummer for this poor woman. It's, it's a very real human crisis. And you and I are going to get into this crisis that she's experiencing. Many of us have already been in this crisis before. It's a painful crisis. And in this painful crisis, and this is the nut of what, what I want to say, when you're in this painful crisis, several paths open up for you to possibly pursue. Pain creates avenues for you to pursue. We want to see how Hannah, what Hannah does in her pursuit in her pain. So let me explain. First of all, let's just notice this crisis comes in several different ways. First, the Lord had closed her womb. It's listed there in verse 5. It's said again in verse 6. So it's something the, the writer wants to make sure you get. You, you don't want to just read through it. In two verses, it's mentioned twice. So he's trying to say, don't read by this. Think about Hannah and, and know as the reader, the reason she can't have children is not because of her. It's because of God. That's a critically important piece of this crisis. In the Old Testament, the, the, the culture of bearing women was just enormously significant. Children were the future. If you were hoping to have any kind of social security in your old age, it was having children because they were going to work the farm, they were going to do the business, and they were going to take care of you. They're also the people who are going to uh, help the country. So we need men and women, we need soldiers, we need people to help protect the boundaries of our country. And, and these are the people who are going to sa save us from this invasion of possible harm. And so having children gave you a, a cultural status. If you were a woman who had a lot of children, you, you weren't only just blessed because of your family, you, you were a blessing to the whole nation. And so here, here is Hannah. She's not a blessing to her family. She doesn't feel like a blessing to her whole nation. She's just this barren woman. And, and, and having children was so important that if you got married and your first wife, Hannah, didn't give you children, then they thought it was okay. It wasn't okay biblically, but they thought it was okay. Just marry another woman. Just keep marrying until you find somebody who gives you children. It's that important. So I want you to feel the weight of this crisis for Hannah. And I want you to hear again that Hannah's painful situation was not by accident. It was by action of God. This is not an accident. This is an action of God. That's the heart of Hannah's crisis. That's the heart of where so many people struggle with God. They're, they're trying to come to grips in their pain of if God is sovereign, then why am I experiencing this? That is a crisis you will face. 
And you might face it many times, but probably some people are facing it right at this moment. They're in this place of pain. They're trying to trust in a God of sovereign, and they just can't get their minds wrapped around these two two very significant events that are happening in their lives. It creates a tension. And sometimes in this tension, people will say something like, Well, God has allowed this problem, but he didn't cause the problem. You've heard that? You may have said that. And, and, you know, perhaps it's helpful. I I would just say, in the moment of somebody's pain, the best thing is just to stand near them. The less you say, the more helpful usually you are. And when they get some space away, then you can try to insert some language. But sometimes people will say... God allows this problem, but he's not the cause of the problem. I think you might think of, let's say, Joseph. Joseph, who was tortured by his brothers, sold as a slave. And at the very end of Genesis chapter 50, you know this. He looks at his brothers and says, but as for you, what does he say? You meant it for evil. I'm not trying to get you off the hook. You meant it for evil, but but God. He meant it for good. See, God was involved with it in some ways, not just saying God was absent, but God was involved in this pain in some way. But the but the evil part goes to the brothers and then God is rescuing it in some way for good. And then, of course, you have sort of the person who has a doctor's degree in pain, Job. And an accident, you know, it's not really an accident because God is sovereign over it. You read that in the first chapter of Job. But Job is sitting at his house and he finds out that a, a windstorm has killed all of his children. So how would you react? Job one twenty one: the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. So, so whether evil has happened... Or an accident has happened. The Bible is telling us that God is sovereign over all these things. And I can tell you from personal experience, when you're in that painful situation, it's a real wrestling match. It feels like I don't know who's going to win this wrestling match. I don't know if I'm going to leave the wrestling match really believing in a God who acts this way. Who's sovereign over my pain. Now, on top of this wrestling match, to make it worse, we've got this uh, woman who's uh, the, the second wife. And it says, verse 7, year after year, this woman, Paniah, who apparently missed the, the Dale Carnegie reading assignment, how to win friends and influence people. She missed that as she grew up because year after year, she she takes the needle and sticks it in the eye of Hannah saying, oh, I got all these sons and daughters. Where are your? Oh, sorry. You didn't have any. Just year after year, just needling her to death. And finally, Hannah has to deal with, I I think, a well-meaning husband. Verse 8, Elkanah. But a well-meaning, egocentric husband. (laughs) Notice this, what he says. Am I not more to you than ten sons? 
Notice no response from Hannah. It just might be a really good tip. Wives, don't you wish you could have been on the scene and just watched Hannah's facial expressions? Like, I'm in pain, and my well-meaning but stupid husband comes to me, and he says, let's stop thinking about your pain. Instead, what does he say? Think about me. Look how wonderful I am. Gosh. Just, just no words, just eye daggers. Men, have you felt those? You said this and you, it really came from the heart, but just a sword came out of her eyes, no words. And you just left, you know, hash. So Hannah's in this real crisis. She's, she's wrestling with her pain. She's wrestling with her pain with the sovereignty of God. In the midst of this very tense wrestling match, she has this other woman who doesn't know how to be an encourager. And then she has this self-centered man who thinks he's helping out, but not helping out. That's her painful situation. And when you're in this kind of pain, avenues open up for you to travel down. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And, and I want to mention some of them. And this may stir up some thoughts that I can maybe help you with or pray with you about or somebody can help you with. Let me just mention a few avenues. I think a very big highway that you could travel down is the negative highway. You read... Twice that the Lord closed her womb. You recognize as the reader, her pain isn't an accident. It's an action by God. And you make a conclusion, something like this. I don't want to have anything to, with, to do with a God who operates like that. Maybe you're here and you don't really know that much about Christianity. You don't know much about the Bible. And you read this and you just say, well, if this is what God is like. If, if this woman is in this kind of pain and it's actually an action by God, then I don't want to have anything to do with your God. And, and I, I want you to hear me say, I'm sympathetic to going negative. I've gone negative before. I understand this highway really well. One problem that I faced when I went negative is I wanted to be angry at God and I wanted to blame him. But because I was going negative, I was going to leave the wrestling match saying, I don't believe in God anymore. Does that make sense? So do you see the the tension I have? I'm angry and blaming God for this situation, but I don't believe God anymore. I'm angry at a God that I don't believe in. So I've got this pain that doesn't go away, and the person I'm trying to blame or give it to, I'm saying I don't believe exists anymore. That's a tough place to be. Not believing in God for me didn't make my pain go away. It actually expanded my pain. Because I couldn't answer it. I was trying to not believe in a God who wasn't answering it. And then I got stuck just by myself. And this was a bigger plane than I could even hold on to. 
So you, you can go the negative highway. I'm, I'm sympathetic to that way. I don't think it's a good way. I think you get yourself in all kinds of problems. I think the second path that you could take in this painful situation is instead of going negative, you go passive. Passive would say something like this. Well, if God is sovereign, then who am I to do anything about my situation? I just should passively sit back and accept my lot in life. I mean, I think there is a God. He's bigger than me. If he's if he operates this way, I mean, what should I do? I mean, I guess nothing. And it's kind of a fatalistic view. It it brings on depression. It's very demoralizing. And unfortunately, when you take the passive view, I've seen this happen so many times that that in your pain, you end up with self-inflicted wounds. You, you just say, I guess it doesn't matter what I do. God's in control. And a lot of times that unleashes you into doing things that are self-destructive. You cause yourself pain because you think it doesn't matter anymore. So you can be negative. You can be passive. You could be Therapeutic. Hannah could have found a therapist. Hey, when I go to Shiloh, you know, at the temple, I want to get a card from a counselor. And I'm going to go to counseling instead of the temple. And her counselor could have said something like this. I see you're crying all the time. You're starting to develop an eating disorder. You obviously don't have good boundaries with this relationship with this toxic woman named Paniah. And so what I want to do is I want to prescribe some medication to you that I think will help. And then I want to advise you to shift your focus off of having children onto something else. See, you're so locked down in this thing that you can't get that we got to lift you out of this. And you need to lock on to something that is available, maybe like your husband or, or your career or something else. And this this kind of advice comes out all the time. And I want you to see it comes out in the text. It's exactly what her husband suggests. you got to see this. He comes to her and he offers therapeutic advice. He says, I can see you can't have children. Can I shift the object of your affection towards me? You see, that's what he's saying. Am I not more to you than ten sons? See what he's suggesting Hannah to do? He's basically coming to his wife and saying, Hannah, I see that the object of your happiness or your misery is wrapped up in, in, in having or not having children. And since you can't have that, then I'm going to suggest a new object of your happiness and I'm going to insert myself. And that might be well-meaning, but hear me say, that's terribly misguided. That is terribly misguided therapeutic advice. Because please understand, no child, no number of children, no career, no loving husband is a strong enough object to hold on to for your whole life. There is no other object to hold on to except for God. Any alternative for your affection is called idolatry. And not only is it idolatry, it's massively disappointing. Because when you put your, all of your affection into your child or your career 
or your degree. It can't hold on. It can't hold it all. It cannot hold it all. And you will find yourself chasing after one object, after another, after another. And you're just going to have this growing hole in your soul. Because it's only meant for God to fill. So that's the painful situation. I want you to see verse 9, Hannah's response. She doesn't go negative. She doesn't go passive. She doesn't go therapeutic. And, and, and this is very easy to miss. I wouldn't have seen it myself unless I had studied it this week. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. See that? Some of your, your translation says, Hannah stood up. Now, it seems, just seems weird. She stood up. I mean, that's the end of the sentence. So they, they ate and then she stood up. I mean, why would you say that? And the reason you would say it is because it's a Hebrew idiom. It's not just describing an action. You know what an idiom is. It's a, a series of words that when you put them together, they don't actually mean what those single words mean. So if you say he kicked the bucket, you don't mean somebody walked up and kicked the bucket. What you mean is the guy died. He kicked the bucket. And so when in Hebrew it says Hannah rose or Hannah stood up, it's basically saying that, that Hannah put her foot down. She drew a line in the sand. She, she took charge. She took a decisive a- action. So you just need to look at this verse. You might want to just circle Hannah Rose because this is what many of you need to do today. You just need to stand up. You need to take charge. You need to take decisive action. No more is Hannah going to go through this parade of sadness year after year. No more is she going to be completely controlled by her circumstances. No more is she going to live her life through the lens of somebody else or the lens of the culture. No no more. She's, she's standing up. She's taking charge. Hannah has had a, I've had it moment. And I know some of you have had that moment. You, you, you've been living your whole life through the lens of someone else. A culture, a parent, a person, whatever it is. You've been living your life hoping for this one thing that never seems to arrive. And finally you realize, I've just got to stand up. I've got to say, I've had it. I'm not going to go negative. I'm not going to go passive. I'm not going to go therapeutic. Instead, I'm going to stand up. And what does she do? What's the critical turning point? What's this radical thing that Hannah does? It's something that you and I can do. Verse 11, her radical move is to pray. She stands up and says, I'm not going to listen to the noise of the culture anymore. I'm going to turn and I'm going to listen to God and I'm going to focus on him. That's the turning point. That's the standing up. And so this is our third point. This is look at her prayer. So wonderful. First thing she says is, oh, Lord of hosts. This is Hannah resetting her compass. Everything has been, the needle has been on so many other things. And Hannah, just in this very opening phrase, she's saying, you're the Lord of hosts. You're the Lord of all the planets, the Lord of all the solar system. You're the Lord of hosts. You're the Lord of a great army. And so I'm coming to you like a star and saying, I need to get my orbit around you. I'm coming to you like a soldier saying, I'm just going to do whatever you say. I'm, I'm totally riveted on your voice and your voice alone. I'm no longer listening to my husband, no matter how well. 
well-meaning it is. I'm no longer missing, listening to Paniah. I'm no longer listening to the culture. I'm just listening to you. That's the first step. That's an important first step. She totally reorients herself to, I'm just now listening to God. And this is what she says. Now I'm your servant. The beginning of her prayer gets her out of the world's orbit and into God's orbit. Now just hear me say, she decides here, I'm not going to go negative. I'm just not going to go negative. I trust that there is a God. I I believe that he's good. And instead of turning my back, which is a very easy thing to do, I'm going to just lean in. Instead of leaning out, I'm going to lean into God. Secondly, look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me. She doesn't go passive. Think about this, Hannah. Hannah, this single female lives in an obscure town you've never heard of she lives 3,000 years ago on a hill somewhere I mean she's nobody but she actually believes there is a God who listens to her prayers she's not going passive She's not going negative and turning away from the Lord, but she's not saying, well, God's in control and whatever. No, she really believes there is a God who's listening to her prayer. And she says, Lord, I just want you to look upon my affliction. I want you to see that I'm trying to be your servant. And would you please remember me? She, she's not passive. She's not fatalistic, but she stops complaining and she starts praying because she believes that prayer matters. This is a great prayer. Third thing, if you give to your servant a son, I will give him back to you all the days of his life. Now, when you first read this, this sure sounds like bargaining, does it not? And I don't want to say there's not some of that in there, because Hannah's not perfect. But I don't think it's really bargaining, and I'm going to tell you why. I I think this way of saying this is a shift in Hannah's affection. See, she's made a Nazarite vow for this son that she hopes he has. So no, no razor can touch his head. It's called a Nazarite vow. And what she's saying is that he's going to be exclusively for the Lord's use, meaning not for my use. And so if he, if you give me this son, I'm going to give him back to you. And he's going to live at the temple, which he does, beginning at age three. And Hannah never lives with him after age three. So I don't think she's trying to make a bargain. I think she's having a shift in her affection. And Tim Keller paraphrases her prayer this way. Lord, all my life I've wanted to have a child for me. But now I I still want to participate in bearing a child, but I want to do it for you. Lord, if you if you had given me a child before this prayer, I would have made him an idol. It would have been a disaster. But now I'm redirecting 
I'm redirecting my affections and my desires towards you. Therefore, and this is critical, since I'm asking for you and not for me, whatever you decide to do, it's okay with me. Now, I think visibly you can see that she made a shift in verse 18. She went away. She ate and her face was no longer sad. So she was at peace. She stood up. She took a decisive action. She got in the right orbit. She got as a soldier in the right army of a great commander. And she said, Lord, I'm just telling you what's on my heart, but I'm giving it to you. And whatever you decide, I can live at peace. See, if it had been a bargain, it would have been prayer, pregnancy, peace. But instead, what you see is prayer, peace, and pregnancy. And she would have going to be at peace, whatever the Lord's decide. And by God's mercy, he decided to give her a son named Samuel. Three years later, Hannah visits Shiloh, this time with her three-year-old son. And when she goes back home, she leaves him there. And she visits him, I'm assuming, every year, the religious times. And eventually Samuel becomes a great leader. He's the bridge between the judges and the kings. He's the one who anoints David to be the king. And you could say that the severe trial of Hannah, her prayer, her delivery of a son proved to be the salvation of an entire nation. This one barren woman on a rocky hillside decided to not go negative, decided not to be passive, decided not to be therapeutic, but decided to stand up and go to God in prayer and say, God, you're in control. And however you want to use me, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to be at peace with your decision making. You might say, like I would say, I said in my office this afternoon or this week, I don't want severe trial. Why can't God use severe comfort? That was my thought. I'm up for severe comfort, just so painfully comfortable God can use me. But that just isn't the way God works. A thousand years later, there's another young woman. She doesn't have to endure the severe trial of being barren. She has to endure the severe trial of being a virgin with a child. She delivers a son who doesn't just save a nation. He saves the whole world. For some of you, I have no doubt, this is the time to stand up. Stop being ruled by what the culture tells you you must be, you must have to be happy. To stop being ruled by some other voice. You know, you can be ruled by a voice of somebody who is in the grave. And you live your whole life hearing this voice. And at some point, you have to say, I'm standing up. Now, my guess is Hannah had to stand up, not just one time, but but time after time. 
to revisit, hey, that's, this is the truth, not these other voices. But some of you here have gone negative. And I know if you have, I'm sympathetic, but that highway ends in a cul-de-sac of pain. Some of you have gone passive, and you don't, you really no longer care what happens to yourself or other people. Many of you have gone therapeutic. And somebody has spilled out some sewage into your life and your brain saying, yeah, you got the wrong object of affection and they've given you something that's equally wrong. You need to stand up. Shut all that off and just go to the Lord and say, God, you're a good God. Whatever you do. No matter how we might explain it here. It's all under your action and activity. There's no accidents. And I'm just going to trust you. And when I see you in heaven, you know what? I'm not going to have a list of questions to pull out. Because all questions will be answered just by seeing Jesus. There won't be any questions. You'll, you'll be embarrassed you even had questions. If it's time for you to stand up, would you, would you come and ask somebody to pray with you after the service is over? Let's pray together. Lord, well, thank you so much for Hannah. What a, what a giant of a woman. This prayer alone could be the fuel that helps many people move away from a bad direction to you. So I pray that you use it for your purposes, your healing, your help, your encouragement. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.